hello there, welcome back or welcome aboard. You are welcome. I'm Judy DL and I'm a radioactive cockroach. Now this is an identity that always requires an explanation. If you've been impacted by or harmed by or love someone who has been impacted by or harmed by sexual assault, you'll know what feeling like a radioactive cockroach means. Sometimes we feel like we should just scuttle back under the fridge where we belong. Sometimes we feel we're just a little bit revolting, a little bit too much. And being radioactive, well that's a whole other thing. We might have the capacity to cause some kind of unseen harm, but we're the ultimate survivors. So if you're still living with and working through the impact of assaults, of processes, of community attitudes, of family dynamics... We're here to keep you company. This is a comforting space, a good-humoured space. Much of what we do is simply entertaining. But we also go on topic and get a little bit informative. Cockroaches, this is a safe space. This isn't where we share stories from the trenches. We try to avoid triggering details. But if anything you hear here or indeed anywhere else raises any issues for you, please contact 1-800-RESPECT-IN-AUSTRALIA or any of the other resources listed at the end of this podcast and on the notes on our podcast feed. Or, of course, one of your good mates. Cockroaches, we've been putting this episode together during NAIDOC week. For our international listeners... NAIDOC Week celebrates the First Nations of Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So we're bringing you an interview with Seth. Seth has worked in the justice system and now works in education, facilitating relationships between educators and Aboriginal families in order to improve outcomes for everyone. With his brother Samuel, he runs a really interesting not-for-profit that we're going to hear a lot more about today. Seth, welcome to Radioactive Cockroach and you're here today uh, to provide a bit of comfort for our cockroaches. So if you're looking for the best comforters around, you've come to the right place. Oh, you sure have. Can I say, if, if Seth picks you up and hugs you, you know you've been picked up and hugged. Seth, welcome. And you are recording on the land of the Jajawarang? I'm um, back in Melbourne. Oh, you're back in Melbourne. So whose country um, are you on? The pickup um, for moving back to Bendigo. Yeah. So yeah, I'm on Rundry country down here. Okay. And can I just say, cockroaches, that Seth is one of the... Rising leaders that we acknowledge. Yeah. <laughs> when we do our, our acknowledgement of country and, and pay respects to leaders past, present and future, I think Seth fits into the present and future because he has this fabulous Born to Dance company. And can you tell us a little bit about it, like how to pronounce it and that kind of thing? Yeah. So Born to Dance is um, the English translation. It's Tom Brangi Nyaga. Is um, so Tom Brangi, born to dance, Nyaga is we're uh, Wurundjeri word for dance. It's a not for profit organisation that centres around 
um, sharing and expressing Aboriginal culture between Aboriginal people first and foremost and then to broader community. And it's very much a, a contemporary Aboriginal culture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of been the ideas was born out of uh, my brother and my personal joint journeys as Aboriginal men and then connecting with a friend of ours um, as well who actually conceptualised the idea when we were at a music festival we bumped into a mate of ours, Luke Isaacs, um, who's our other founding member. And after going to many outdoor music festivals and gatherings, we'd often thought, you know, we're connecting to the land, the nature, there's a broader community there, there's music, there's dance, and there's usually a welcome to country ceremony of some kind or an yep. acknowledgement, but not too much past that. So we established a not-for-profit as a way to provide consultancy to event organisers about how they can better incorporate Aboriginal culture into their events past, say, acknowledgement or a welcome. And for us also to have a formal structure as an incorporated organisation to run our own events. Yep. Um, and programs and initiatives which primarily centre around Aboriginal young people. Yep. So it's contemporary Aboriginal electronic dance music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. Um, I think everybody would have probably heard of um, a lot of Aboriginal hip hop musicians. Yep. Briggs or Baker Boy and um, Birdie and a few others. And I guess our passion and interest lies in techno and dance music and we see a great synergy between traditional culture and contemporary interpretations of that through yep. through dance. Um, so our events that we run provide a mix of that and to express it in a contemporary way and explore identity in 2020. Somehow we don't agree in the way they want us to live. I like to feel the earth with my feet. Because I was born with no shoes, and I'm sure the modern man wasn't born with shoes as well. So I'm, yeah. Reading through your stuff and um, looking at the beautiful photos that have come up on Facebook, you seem to have such a rapport with a really wide range of attendees, a lot of young kids um, and a lot of adults from a lot of different backgrounds by the look of it. Yeah, yeah, we've got a very broad, broad spectrum of people that come to our events, which is great. Um, and having them focused around youth and young people really adds a community dynamic to it. Um, providing opportunities where people can bring their kids, no matter their age groups, and having facilities for them. But yeah, essentially at the heart of it, most of the people that come along, they're either Aboriginal people or um, non-Aboriginal people want, wanting to connect yeah. with the community. Um, yeah, and we just provide another avenue for that yep. in consultation with a lot of um, uh, elders' guidance that yes. we consult with, which yeah. is very important. Yeah. Like some people say, I'm the first and the last. And the spirit of Australia. I noticed on the Deadly Discos website they make a, a, a point of being very inclusive of families that are temporarily rearing Aboriginal children in the care system. Yeah, so we run uh, our Deadly Discos, which is, I guess, our take on a blue light disco. Yep. Uh, deadly being a Koori or Aboriginal slang word for awesome or very good. Yep. So they're not dangerous, they're child safe. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, we we've run them um, in broader broader community settings for, for everybody. We've also run them specifically for out of home care children mm-hmm. um, and those who might be slipping into the youth justice system yeah. in partnership um, with a few local community organisations. And that's been really positive. Um, if kids are in care, they yeah, can lose a connection to culture and identity. And having worked in that system, it's very, that can happen very easily. It's yeah. a slippery slope. Yeah. Um, so we just try and provide an outlet for families to come so together. I'm, yeah, like some people say, I'm the first and the last. But in essence, my job is to build the capacity of education services from kindergarten, primary and secondary school um, and support Aboriginal families to engage in their child's education, but also the school system to help schools understand the needs of Aboriginal families. It replaces the past career educator role, um, which kind of had the notion of it's an Aboriginal child called the Aboriginal worker, whereas my role is more stuff. There's a situation, Aboriginal child, no, well, how do we care for this child? Yeah. So you're not the person that comes in to fix it and take over. You're the person to open up the conversation about how the needs can be met. Yeah, absolutely, which is a turnaround from how things have historically been been done. Yeah, so um, through your work and through the the dance parties, it's about building identity, self-esteem and a bit of joy in that, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I've had, yeah, some others say it's been culture's a journey. It's not a destination. Yeah. So kind of a, yeah, it's a good way to bring people together. And that's been very nourishing for me personally growing up, um, having that cultural guidance through the elders particularly, making sure we're on the right track and doing yep. things respectfully. Yep. Um, so so that was through your mother's family you, largely? Yeah, yeah. So through mum, <coughs> so through mum, pop, it's Gunditjmara, which is the southwest coast of Victoria. Yep. Gunditjmara belonging to Mara is a uh, man. Um, and mum's mum was Welsh. Um, and then dad's family, dad's dad was Irish, his mum's British. Um, and I'm from WA. I currently grew up with my grandfather and mum's family. Mm-hmm. That's been a um, yeah, big part of my life and forms a large part of my identity today. Yeah. Um, and something I you know, identify a lot with because I've fortunately been on being able to know uh, my grandfather's country, being Victoria, um, and having access to it. So it's only, it's yeah. only a few hours away. Yeah. Mum kind of raised Samuel and I to know where we're from and who we are, and has done a great job in like yeah, navigating those support um, cultural supports our identity growing up because yeah. that side of the family is quite scattered given yeah, its history. Yes, yeah. Breathe right now. Breathe right now. Yeah, it's all about... Um, Justice reinvestment is the term that's getting Just, going Justice reinvestment, okay. Yeah. yeah, so it's, yeah, what preventative factors. 
we know the most one um, strongest to build resilience yeah. people might have experienced hardships um, yeah and then moving forward whereas the current justice punitive system is um, creates a cycle it does especially yeah. for young people um, trying to nurture yeah. identity in that space is very difficult yeah and if you're going to criminalize children at the age of 10 who are simply struggling raise the age <laughs> absolutely raise the age yeah 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 when I'm yeah when I was in custody I, I met far too many young fellas you found their way in there because there was no food in the fridge and yep. they went on a slippery slope that wasn't um it wasn't their path oh um and it, it's not necessary to be so punitive and to lock people into that trajectory at such a young age when mm. a little bit of um, common sense love and tenderness would turn it round. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we've kind of been raised through the education system with a deficit narrative of Aboriginal people in history. Yeah. It really is a resilience narrative. Yep. Uh, looking at the strengths. Um, so, yeah, if you can turn that around for the kids, that can make a big difference in their life. Yeah. Grow up proudly. Yeah, yeah. proudly. So you're hoping that you know, COVID lifts and you can start bringing children together with, with their families and friends and start dancing together again with in this strong expression of joyful contemporary Aboriginal musical culture. We ran an event over Australia Day weekend, Swabado weekend, up on Tanarong country, so not towards northeast Victoria, uh, called Yamanda, which is a Tanarong word meaning to share. Mm-hmm. We did that with Uncle Larry Walsh, who's a Tanarong elder. Um, yeah, and that was a multi day event, so expanding on our one day events to actually stage out a cultural experience for attendees. And through that, we built off. Um, yeah, our previous events. So we had guest speakers come in and a range of different activities for different ages. So people could camp and stay over? Yeah, camp and stay over on the beautiful yeah. Rubicon River. Oh, beautiful. Um, it was yeah. a lovely weekend. Yeah. And yeah, we've got hopefully, yeah, when things can return um, safely, we'll, we'll be ready to go. Ready and to go and ready to keep building those networks amongst people and a bit of pride and joy and creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And, um, it, it's been really good actually because through this whole process we've met other people, other Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people who want to be a part of it or, you know, even just meeting other Aboriginal DJs that yeah. said, oh wow, you know, I'm always hearing Aboriginal rappers that I didn't know like, yeah. I was doing this. So, yeah, it's been really good. Um, it's kind of been very organic, which has been nice. Very organic and, and just sort of networking and building of relationships. did an event with our Uncle Larry called um, Nyaka Blatu Mernian, which means Dance to the Big Moon, so at Fed Square we set the backing tracks and Uncle Larry told his star stories to themed music. Oh, wow. And after that we thought, let's let's write an EP and make this an EP. So we applied for an arts grant with the City of Melbourne to, um, to help us do that. So I've written a three-track EP with Uncle Larry. Uh, it's all dance music, and it kind of weaves in um, 
I guess we provide the audio backdrop to Uncle's stories. So cultural elements and sounds, Aboriginal instruments, um, and recordings of sounds on country. Yeah. yeah but they, they tell three, like, uh, creation stories. Mm-hmm. Great to share with kids. Great. Okay. Um, and the other thing I'll say, if people do want to find out more, and if they do have access to Facebook, uh, it's our Facebook URL is uh, facebook.com forward slash Aboriginal Techno. One day, duck woman, on a warm day, went for a swim in Wallarat Wallahole. She knew it was Wallarat Wallahole, but she didn't believe Wallarat existed. She just thought it was a story to keep them out of the Seth, water. thank you for your generosity in sharing that with us. Um, I encourage all your cockroaches to keep an eye out for this and share it with any of your Aboriginal friends and your friends with kids in care, anyone that you think might enjoy a contemporary Aboriginal techno dance party. Have I got it right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you for having me. And cockroaches hang around till the end of the episode because today's soothing artistic offering at the end of the episode is the entire story with Uncle Larry. And now it's time for the Alan Stutzer. Cockroaches, Stutzo and I, Dion and Stutzo, we are so close to chatting in the same room together. Give us another episode, but meanwhile, it's Macedon Rangers connecting with northwestern suburbs of Melbourne via fairly dodgy broadband. It was a fairly big week in the media here in Australia where one of my favourite journalists, Louise Milligan, put together an expose on our national broadcast to the ABC, a program called Four Corners, where she looked at the behaviour of politicians in what they call the Canberra bubble, particularly the way the powerful exploit their capacity to draw their staffers into inappropriate personal relationships. So we're taking the opportunity to bounce off that because we already had, ready to go up, a rather good story, pretty relevant, from our very own Stutzo. So here we are having a bit of a chat earlier in the week by way of an introduction to her story. Behaviour of politicians, well, what goes on know, in the bars, what goes on in Canberra, stays in Canberra. Yeah, as near as I can tell, you know, it hasn't really changed since 1983, mm. at least as far as politicians and their uh, direct employees go, you know, they still hire their relatives. They, they still have sex with the junior Garofis Clark. Um, it's just what happens. And it's got to stop. Well, yes, it, it does, but I don't know what will make people stop. These are the most powerful people in the land. You pass the laws. Yeah, just don't quite seem to get it. And this is this is the politicians. I'm not saying they, the public servants have the same predilections, or they can do, but they get into a lot of trouble for it. 
But, uh, yeah, politicians still have a habit of hiring relatives. But that's, that's the way politics works. One hand washes the other. As my first boss said to me when I became a manager, whatever you do, don't screw the crew. I was uh, working in Canberra for the federal government in a high-profile department in quite a high-profile job. I'd moved to Canberra for just that reason. It was where I wanted to be. It was a, a serious career move and I was loving it. I'd made all these new friends. I'd taken up all these sports. I had amazing work and it, it just a, a huge career path. I mean, life was good. The only downside of where I was working was that the permanent secretary for whom I worked was known by a number of epithets. The most common was groper. He loved her boobs. He yeah. loved her ass in particular. Okay. And, uh, and also a bit of a pincher as well. Ow. So it got to a point where they gave him a male secretary they did all they could to keep him away from, from women mm-hmm. in the organisation and for the most part seemed to be working. We're talking 1980s, so yeah. we're not talking a woke establishment. It was No, we're had, not talking really open and accessible processes largely either, are we? No, no. You know, there was really not a lot you could do. You just had to sort of dodge as much as you could. But anyway, life was get pretty good for me. Once a year... We had a a sporting weekend. I was in a a touch rugby team. On this particular occasion, the groper decided he was going to attend, but his normal wrangler was not available. There was someone that was understood that would just stay sober and stand between him and danger. Exactly. Uh, And he was unavailable. I believe his wife was having a child. So, What an excuse. Yeah. What a job. (laughs) So this guy was was wombling free pretty much. And during the weekend, he made himself a bit of a pain. He got a few drinks into him. It became a real problem. All of a sudden, there's this bloody painful smack on my behind mm. on my on my left cheek if I remember correctly mm-hmm. followed up by a quick pinch and I thought oh wow turning around thinking it was some teammate yeah and it it was the boss and there he was and I was livid well I didn't think it through that quickly no I I just gave him the dick punch see I'm not familiar with a dick punch I was always taught to clench my fists and bring them upwards hard to the balls. But that's kind of hard to achieve. How is a dick punch delivered? Up high. Yep. At shoulder height? Shoulder height. Boom. Straight into the dick. Straight into the dick. And with a bit of luck, it'll reverberate off the balls anyway. Yeah, well, they're closely aligned. (laughs) (laughs) And this dude just went down like a sack of potato. Did it occur to you that your career was also in that same sack? About three seconds. Uh Uh-huh. Because there was that first second of, you bloody deserve this. Yep. There was this second second of, who are you anyway? And the third second of recognition. Yeah. 
God, what have I done? You know, this is mm-hmm. it. Korea over. I'll be on the next plane back to Melbourne. Is he going to call the cops? Did that occur to you? Well, I figured he could, but he hit me first. Yeah. So I had a good argument for self-defence. <laughs> <laughs> and a six-foot-four boyfriend in the federal police. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't worried about... Legal ramifications, but uh, job, ooh. So anyway, and I've done it in front of like dozens of witnesses, so everybody saw it go down. Yeah. So I sort of turned up to work on Monday morning and fronted up to the my boss's desk and said, hi, you know, and he mm-hmm. said, oh, come on, you, me and the wrangler need to talk. And I thought, oh, this is just going to be, do I need my union rep? No, no, it'll be fine. Come on. This is just an informal discussion. And they basically put it to me that the reality was I couldn't stay there. Not in that that job? Not in that job. Wasn't going to happen. But they weren't going to punish me for what was a not unreasonable response to an assault. Uh, so they said, look, we know you want to work in this other department. This was sort of where you were heading, what you were really interested in. So we're going to move you sideways into yeah. that department and you can continue the re- your, your career that way. There'll be nothing mentioned on your file. I know this doesn't fix it, doesn't make it better, doesn't stop him doing this again to somebody else. But if it's any consolation... He's at home in bed right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you got him a good one. Should I stay or should I go? Sideways. Oh, yay, cockroaches. We just love that spotlight, don't we? The spotlight's when we go processy. Or when we simply make disclosures, however public, however private, we step into the spotlight and it can be a little bit shriveling. There's two things making a few waves at the moment. One is Louise Milligan's book, Witness an Investigation into the Brutal Cost of Seeking Justice. And the other is a British series called I May Destroy You. I'm going to recommend both these things highly to cockroaches with caution. Oh, Judy, I've just read Louise Milligan's book. What's the title? Witness. Right, right. So it's pretty detailed. Yes. So I, was just, I just thought I'd talk about it because I thought the cockroaches might like to know what I think. What would you want to yeah, know? Far if, away. What would you want to know if you were a cockroach and you were thinking of going to – I guess oh, if I was thinking of making a complaint – not sure I'd read it, actually. Not sure it would be useful. But I'd want all my support team to have read it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I've been close up and personal once or twice and have had vastly different experiences. And I'm also aware that other people have had vastly dis- different experiences. Yeah. Um, and look, she's an expose journalist par excellence. Oh, and no question. deeply traumatised by vicious cross-examination by one of Australia's best and worst at that. <laughs> and that's that's uh, Mr Richter. Mr Robert Richter, Q. 
QC. I think he's still QC. I don't think he's an SC. Um, if you're an international listener, QC is a Queen's Council. Um, and for a while now, when they've what they call take silk, which means they become senior members of the bar, they call themselves Senior Council, which is less colonial. Cockroaches, yeah. be careful. Be careful. This is fraught territory. This is an excellent expose journalist looking at the hardest end of it. I had a really old-style cross-examination right up there in what Louise Milligan describes herself enduring at the, the hands, feet and baseball bat with Robert Richter, QC. Would it have helped me to have no beforehand? How do I know that, Judy? How can I? I don't think you'll ever know. I, I think something like that is so out of the box that I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know either. I think it might have helped me to understand what a breach of the guidelines looked like. And she quotes the guidelines and then you get transcript stuff. And I think if I'd known, without just a general sense that what I was enduring was wrong, if I'd known precisely how it was wrong, I might have felt... Empowered. Oh, it's an awful word, isn't it? But it just happens yeah. to be apt. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, knowledge is power. Knowledge Sometimes, is power, yeah. Uh, just... There'll be more of that review next episode when I've had a chat to a few more people. Cheers. The second spotlight story is I May Destroy You. It's been hyped as a masterpiece. The reason for that is it is. And it's a masterpiece that cockroaches need to view with caution. I'm going to put this link on our podcast feed and on our Facebook page. It's the survivorstrust.org. And they give you all the information that you need to look after yourself. Break it down. Don't watch it all at once. Call on your friends. Plan ahead. Make sure you're in the right frame of mind. Give it a miss. Make sure you're in control. You can turn off an episode. And also read an episode summary beforehand. This is one where you really need the spoilers. I'm not going to review it. I'm going to refer you to Damask and Broderick. And once again, look for this on the podcast feed. They have a regular podcast called Hunting Seasons, where they review seasons of watchable and binge-watchable stuff. They've got a hundred or so episodes up there. They really know what they're doing. Damask, in particular, has reviewed this beautifully, including a frank disclosure of her own and reflections on how it impacted on her. She too says, watch it with care. So my review is listen to Damask's review. I am going to offer you one tip that I haven't found examined anywhere online and it relates to the issue of the disclosures of children. The only time this issue comes up, and can I say almost every conceivable issue of adult consent comes up, the only time the issue of children being assaulted comes up is in the context of the terrible dilemma and confusion and unhappiness that surrounds a young woman 
who at the age of seven was forced by her mother to lie about her father, to say that he had assaulted her when he hadn't, so as to bring about a custody outcome to the mother's liking. This is a common defence, often used in court fallaciously by men. They claim that the child's disclosures were fabricated and reinforced by the mother. In this case on I May Destroy You, it's true. And the damage to that child was profound. However, it's rare. Most children tell the truth and most children turn to their mothers to support them. If you're one of these people, watch out. Read the spoilers. Be prepared. And thank you, cockroaches, for stepping into that spotlight with me. I never said Judy, Judy, Judy. Oh, it's pretty good that we're not saying Judy, Judy, Judy because it's actually Judith. Judith Long, we're welcoming Judith Long. And her book is called The Wadiki Rock on a Roll. So we've got a Judy, Judy, Judith. We've, and one of us isn't here at all. Hi. Hello, 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 hello. So Judy starts. Are you at home? I am at home. I'm on the phone. And I can't be there physically, but I'm there in spirit. Spirit, and we can hear you. So that's all to the good. So welcome, Judith, and welcome to the cockroaches. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be with the cockroaches. Well, I thank you for coming up here to Jajawaran country. And um, I just wondered if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the country that the honour roll is on um, and the people that preceded you, just for a moment. Wadiki Rock is a... It's not a town. It's a small community on the Air Peninsula of South Australia. Air Peninsula is the one that's shaped like a triangle and it's pretty much in the centre of that peninsula. White settlement really only happened in the, in the early 1900s but obviously for thousands of years before that there were people living there, people working there. The country is quite arid. It's on Goiter's line. So Indigenous people, they would pass through walking from one side of the peninsula, one side of the coast to the other side. And Wadiki Rock was one place they would stop. It's a small granite outcrop and there were water holes there. So it would have been an overnight an overnight stop. So it was a, it was a, a place of some importance. Yes. And we encourage you to follow up the history of the area. It's, it's a particularly painful one commencing with the sealers um, and there was a massacre. And then came farming settlement. Yes. And that was your family, I believe. Port Lincoln, which is in the south, mainly known because of a very well-known horse who won the Melbourne Cup comes from there. Which one? Macoby Diva. Oh, okay. Yes. Yep. And also known for tuna fishing. But that was settled in the 1850s because of whalers and sealers and yes. fishermen. But the farming land beyond really didn't open up till after 1900. So where I grew up, which is... Just to put it in perspective, it's about 630 k's west of Adelaide on the Air Highway and 
It was mainly settled in 28, 29. And they came and grow mainly? Mainly wheat back then. And because it was a long way from anywhere to be self-sufficient, they also had sheep and chooks and a cow or two. Oh, no, wheat and sheep really is the Mallee, isn't it? It Yes. (laughs) Wheat and sheep and then wheat and sheep and then wheat and sheep and then, oh, no, the sheep got in the wheat. (laughs) (laughs) So what piqued your interest in the people that you've written about on the honour roll? I lived in this area until I was 13. My father was a farmer. Like his, I won't say like his father before him. Like his, his father's father's father. No, like his mother before him and his mother's <laughs> father. Yeah. My grandfather was actually a stonemason. And even in the 50s when I grew up, it was still quite a remote, isolated community. For instance, I used to get library books sent to me in a box from the State Library of South Australia. And they didn't even have COVID back then. No, too, no COVID, no, no internet. <laughs> we, didn't get the fi- we didn't get electricity till I was about seven. Mm-hmm. It coincided with the birth of my brother, as did with the building of the inside bathroom. So obviously the brother was the impetus for lots of things. Anyway, this is where I grew up. And there was a hall, uh, which was built in 1934 by my stonemason grandfather. I, we would go to the hall for, well, we'd go there for church because the Methodist minister used to come every Sunday. Yeah, so it was a, it was a real community. Community place. Hub. It was a community uh, For hub. a community of... What, several hundred? Yeah, several hundred would have been, probably about a hundred, perhaps more than several hundred if you count the kids, but about a hundred and thirty families back then. I count the kids. Yeah, Yeah. I would count the kids because there were lots of them. Yeah. And so in the 50s, I would go there for school concerts, um, church, mum would go there for CWA, we'd go there for strawberry fates, mum and dad would go for dances when we used to sleep in the car. Can you imagine that happening these days? Yeah, (laughs) I remember. It happened in my day. (laughs) And hanging up one end of the hall was the honour roll. Mm. And um, next to it was a photo of one of those touched-up photos of a very fresh-faced young man called Cedric. And on the honour roll, I knew all the names, on the, well, most of the names on the honour roll because my dad's name was on it, my mm-hmm. uncle's name was on it, our neighbour's name was on it. Uh, so most of the names are very familiar to me. But I never really gave it much thought you don't when you're 12 or 13. No, it's just an honour roll. It's, it's what I roll. used to read in church because you had to read something. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting <laughs> thing, we did not learn about it at school. We learned about Simpson and his donkey, but we didn't learn about the fact that 23 men from our community, mm. you know, went to World War Two. Yeah. But because it's settled in 1929, there is no World War One history from this community. No. So it's a, it's a World War Two history. And so... At what stage did you develop an interest in that? It's all to do with social media. So when this Facebook page started, I could be—I was a major contributor. I finally found a place for all the dad's old photos. Yeah. Yes. On this Facebook page, a young a woman called Nicole, who's from one of the founding families, as I am, Nicole posted a photo of some soldiers. She said, "I know the one in the middle is my great grandfather. I've got no idea who are the rest." So I said, "Hang on, I'll ask my uncle because he's still alive at ninety-seven almost." He was able to name who a few of them were. And I said, but none of these are on the honour roll. And he said, no, they're not from Wadiki Rocks. But it made me think about the men on the honour roll. And some of them are still familiar names in the area, but we don't know anything about them. Yeah. I know that one was a POW and I know one was a rat of Tobruk because Dad told me. But I probably knew more about them than 98% of the rest of the population involved 
in this area. And then 18 months later? 18 months later, the book appears, The Wadiki Rock Honour Roll. It was easy in a way because I was so familiar with all of the names and it was easy to track down family and descendants. Yeah. And once I tracked What about military records? Military records. Australia, we're really lucky in Australia. I know lucky means we've been to lots of wars, but we have some of the best military records in the world Yeah, because we've been good at keeping records and also because, unlike England or Germany, we haven't lost them during bombing and blitzes. So military records are relatively accessible in this country. So you were able to get all of their records? I got all of their records. From the the central? Yeah, it was. And so then you were through family connections and people who are interested in local history and through those official records, you were able to flesh out these people. South Australia still has a very sort of gossipy Sunday paper called the Sunday Mail. It's the only Sunday paper they have. They have a section called Can You Help? Oh, so you did that? So I did Can You Help? Oh, now that's old school. It's very old school, but I had put two in and, in fact, it yielded like gold both times. There were two names on the list who had left, left the area during the war and who somewhat surprisingly weren't related to anyone else in the area and I found both those families through um, through the Sunday through Mail. Can you help? Yeah. yeah, but that was very old school. Most of the rest was done through internet researching yes. and social media. And this became a, a great focus for you. And you're still married. And I am still married. And my husband <laughs> had to live with those twenty three men for eighteen months. <laughs> but he's got a workshop of his own to retreat he has. to. Yes. He knows more about some of those fellows than he would like to. Yeah. <laughs> But in the chasing up of the families, the guy who was the POW, interestingly, he enlisted with my dad. My grandfather drove Dad and Bill to the coast to Cal. That would have been, even now, it's a couple of hours. So let's say on a dirt road, it was four or five hours. Oh, at least. Then they got a the boat across to Wallaroo, which is on the York Peninsula, yeah. the one shaped like a foot. Yes. And then they caught the train to Adelaide. And then Dad... For the first time, he'd never been to Adelaide before. He was 20 years old. He'd never been to Adelaide. Then he walked, I think, to his Auntie Ivy's because she didn't live far out of the... She lived in like what is now a, a trendy in a suburb. Yes, I was, I was going to say there, there weren't that many out of suburbs. No, to... <laughs> no she, she lived in what is now a trendy suburb. And um, he and Bill went the next day thinking they would sign up. Bill was 23. Yeah. And... They took one look at, well, they did the aptitude test. They both romped through it, apparently. Well, they'd have been, they'd been living remotely, they would have been quite innovative and had a lot of aptitude for things mechanical. Yeah. And they were smart cookies, and both, they were of smart them, cookies. both of them. Yeah. And then they looked at their education and said, Sorry, boys, you've only got grade seven. You can't join the Air Force. Oh. So, to quote my father, we said, Bugger that, crossed the North Terrace and went and joined the Army. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. So Bill, his mate Bill, it was a POW in Singapore and on the Burma Railroad and then a POW in Japan. And when I was trying to find out about these people, I spoke to one of Bill's nephews and he said to me, you need to talk to Auntie Ronty. She won't mind if I mention her. She's 101. She won't care. Well, if if I could get continue to be mentioned as living at 101, I won't be whinging about the context. Well, she's 101 <laughs> in two weeks. but though. And so I met this amazing woman called Ronty Churches, who was Ronty Stiggins, 
And we discovered, amongst other things, we went to the same girls' school. Oh, well, I took her to the reunion last year. Oh, so was that in Adelaide? <laughs> in Adelaide, yeah. yes. If you just want to know the military history, you know, go and read a book about yeah. military history or yeah. read the history of Tobruk or the Burma Railroad or whatever. But what did it mean to the people? But what did it mean to the people? I was always more interested in the social history. Mm. and even. So what's your, what would you say is your favourite, most touching story that you've put in your book? Um, I mean, I love Bill because Bill was, I mean, Bill's a survivor, you know, he was a sergeant and he always felt he had to look after his men at Changi, so if there was a beating, he'd take it instead. Oh, wow. Well, he yeah. felt that he was the leader. Yeah. Um, the extraordinary thing about Bill is that he stayed in the army, something I find... So did any of the others continue no. after the war? No. So there was just one thought. His yeah. sister said it's because he thought the army would look, he would have health problems and the army would look after him. Did they? Yes, she says they did. They did. They did. I think okay. they did look after their POWs fairly well in oh, the yeah. 60s yep. and 70s. Yeah. Look, probably one of my favourite stories from the book it involves my own uncle, my uncle Moss, Moss and Jack Darby. He was 18 when he joined. Um, I always told him that they lowered their standards by 1942 because he was allowed to join the Air Force <laughs> with Grade 7. <laughs> He also did very well in the aptitude test. I've seen his aptitude test. I know he did very well so in it. So those aptitude tests were worth more than a private school education in the end. They were indeed. Yeah. He couldn't be a pilot. You had to have secondary education to be a pilot. Yes. Um, but he was what they called an aircraft fitter. Mm-hmm. He was in um, New Guinea and um, he and he was part of an Australian Air Force unit attached to uh, the, heavy, the US Heavy Bomber Squadron. And... Um, Uncle Moss and his mates had quite a little black market deal going yep. with the US soldiers. They would um, buy um, silver coins from the soldiers. So yes. At face, you know, at whatever the exchange rate was back then. And one of Uncle Moss's mates was, I don't know, at some sort of metal smith in a real life. Um, probably the, then, back then he was beating out aeroplane wings or something or other. And he would take the coins with the help of Moss and his uh, their other mates. He'd make them into jewellery, and then they'd sell them back to the Americans. Yes, at greatly inflated oh. prices. <laughs> <laughs> and and they did the same thing with the American beer. They would get beer from the American mess. They didn't like it. Yeah, because you know it was Budweiser or yeah, yeah. some watery muck. Yeah, not good beer. No, and um, they'd sell it back at inflated prices. <laughs> <laughs> enterprising. Very enterprising. That's that's the myth of the Australian serviceman, isn't it? Well, sometimes it's true, though. Sometimes it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always a furphy. I'm looking, it's a beautifully illustrated book. It's easy to dip into. That's not the only enjoyable story. It's the story of real people. Oh, look, there's the dog tags. The yeah. other thing I discovered was that there were 23 names on the list. Yes. But, and then I was speaking to, I spoke to people I hadn't spoken to for 50 years. Yeah. I was speaking to Peter Toy, his Bill's nephew. Judith, are you going to have Uncle Bill in? And this is another Uncle Bill. And I said, well, he's not on the honour roll. He said, well, I don't care if he's on the honour roll or not. He was in the Air Force. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, is he? He is. Yeah. I've got a bit at the end of people not on the honour roll and mm. they're a surprising number. Um, so was it just strictly geographical? Well, I'm not sure because they certainly all were in the area when they enlisted. Yeah. And there was another honour roll 
at a community about less than 20 k's away called Kutra East. Mm-hmm. And this, um, the Stringer brothers, if you're a South Australian, the name Stringer means one thing, football. Okay. Um, <laughs> they've won more football awards than any other family in South Australia or something like that. The Stringer brothers rather dominated that, but that honour roll's been lost. Okay. And So they were probably on that one. They were on that one. Some of the others, one was I know who definitely lived in the area, was still in the area after the war, his father was still there. I spoke to his brother and his brother said he wouldn't, he was, um, this guy was in New Guinea, he said he wouldn't have wanted to have been on it. Yeah. So there's also that. Yeah, some, so peop- some people just didn't feel the honour of the experiences in that same way. No. Yeah. Often I think their parents put them there too. Yes, yeah. I mean, Dad's name went up before the war was even over. So yeah, yeah. There are lots of reasons for yeah. these things and they're not embraced by everyone and that's okay. It is okay. That is absolutely okay. And... Um, the other thing that happened was, and I won't get too specific here, was that one family didn't want me having access to records Yes, because their dad had a pretty ho- horrible war. I'm not sure who would have a good war, but he had a pretty horrible war and um, he'd probably, and they were worried he might have written about it in letters and postcards, mm-hmm. so I, w- I was not allowed to have access to them. Okay. I've since read all the letters and there's... Nothing in them. Nothing shameful. Nothing shameful at all. Look, No. But people's sensibilities uh, have to be respected. Indeed. Yeah. Look, Judith, I want to thank you for coming to the beautiful Macedon Ranges. It was really nice to catch up with you and really nice to have my hands on your book. Thank you very much. And really nice to share the experience of this historical research with a really local and meaningful focus which I know lots of our cockroaches are interested in so thank you. Thank you Judy and the other Judy. (laughs) I've chosen a World War One song to share now. I know we've been hearing stories from World War Two but it's still a good song even now. It's a gentle parody about bearing the burden of your own trauma alone so as not to burden others and consequently yourself with their distress. The thing about a good parody, though, is that you need to know the original to hear either the blunt satire or, in this case, the gentle irony. This is a poignant community performance of We'll Never Tell Them. The original is a love song by Jerome Kern, entitled They didn't believe me They didn't believe me a lovely man. Now, little secret. I don't want to upset Mum. Such a close family. And such a good school. She's always been difficult. She's such an overachiever. 
Please tell someone. They'll believe you. We know where you can be heard. So if anything you hear in this podcast raises issues for you or someone you love, we encourage you to access one of the following reliable resources. 1-800-RESPECT in Australia, the Samaritans on 11-61-23 in the UK, and in the US, 1-800-273-TALK. These and other resources are on our Facebook page and podcast feed. So here's Radioactive Cockroach saying thanks for tuning in. Please come again and tell your friends. And after a tumultuous few weeks where Donald Trump seems to have channeled Warren Zevin. Send lawyers, guns and money. This shit has hit the fan. Statsu and I seem to be often borrowing an image from Garrison Keillor's Young Lutheran's Guide to the Orchestra. Keeps you at home. You can't run around with a harp. (laughs) Having one is like living with an elderly parent in very poor health. It's hard to get them in and out of cars and it's hard to keep them happy. (laughs) Takes 14 hours to tune a harp, which remains in tune for about 20 minutes (laughs) or until somebody opens the door. It's an instrument for a saint. We leave the world of elder care and politics and take you out with Brothers, featuring Uncle Larry Walsh and the story Dulawarang. Take it easy. Now, Water Rat heard that from inside his cave. 
noticed it was that woman. So he decided he'd get to know her. So he put down his spear and started swimming in and out of the shallows, as water rat does, while that woman was swimming in the open. Show us, 
Chalice's husband and children. So she called. Husband, can you come out and bring the children? So when Water Rat walked out, all the ducks could see was the Water Rat. So they went for their spears. Stop, she said, stop. That's the husband I was talking about. Water Rat, you better get your people. We need to meet now. So the water rat people came and seen what was going on while the duck people were already talking with each other. Talk went on for a long time. And finally, they said, duck, water rat. For years our people have been enemies. For years our people have fought. Now, because of you two, we can no longer fight. But now, because you two have married, we are now part of the same family, and the proof of that is your children. For the mother had not lied. They had inherited the father's dark and hairy body and his shy nature. 